This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to Earthwise, environment and peace with justice interviews on Plains FM 96.9. Welcome to Earthwise, I'm Lois Griffiths. For today's program, Martin and I will be talking with environmental lawyer Teal Crossan, who has returned to New Zealand after pursuing a fascinating career advising Pacific Island states who are in so much danger from well, what I prefer to call climate chaos or maybe even climate catastrophe. Well, yes, Teal has explained in an article we read recently that she was a climate change negotiator and legal advisor to the chair of the Pacific Small Island Developing States. Welcome to Earthwise, Teal Crossan. Thank you. Well, Teal, Is this grouping of countries into a category, small islands developing states, is this a UN classification? And is it called SIDS, S-I-D-S? That that is correct. I worked for the Pacific SIDS, the Pacific Small Island Developing States, which was a a grouping that the countries formed themselves in order to coordinate their work, both at the United Nations in New York and at the climate change negotiations. These missions um, have very small diplomatic capacity. Some of the countries would only have an ambassador. So the idea was through coordinating their efforts, they would have more of an impact. And we were part, the Pacific was part of the larger grouping of the Alliance of Small Island States. And eventually um, the country I was attached to, Nauru, became the chair of the Alliance of Small Island States. So that included all the Pacific countries, the Caribbean countries, and another grouping of countries such as Maldives, Seychelles, Mauritius, who were all extremely vulnerable to climate change. So, and so we worked together at the United Nations Climate Change Negotiations um, to make our voice more effective. So it is a worldwide uh, small islands. I noticed the names you mentioned all over the world. It's not just Pacific, is it? That's right. Initially, within the islands, there's a Pacific subgrouping. So initially I worked for the Pacific, and then we became chair of... Um, the larger grouping. So, just just make it quite clear, were you working for the UN or with the UN or or not? I was working attached to the government of Nauru for Ambassador Marlene Moses. And so we negotiated at the UN in terms of the General Assembly negotiations and also at the climate change negotiations. Where where were you based with the UN then? I was based in New York at the mission. Uh Did, Did you have a particular office in New York? Is that... I did. Initially, because, as I said, these these countries are very small and have very small capacity, I was attached to the Nauru mission, but there was no space in the office, so I was working out of the Micronesia mission. And then eventually, as Nauru's chairmanship of the Pacific SIDS, and then when we became chair of the Alliance of Small Island States, we got a bigger office, so then I was working out of that office. So Nauru, of course, (laughs) has some other issues to deal with, along with climate, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Um, Those issues weren't so prevalent when I was working for them. But the focus of all the work at the United Nations was climate change. I mean, I never wrote a statement for the Pacific that didn't have climate change in it. If the topic was health, we'd talk about climate change. If it was oceans issues, which we did a lot of advocacy for the Pacific on oceans, given 
um, significant form of sustenance and income for Pacific Islands. We talk about ocean acidification, sea level rise, warming oceans, and peace and security. We would talk about climate change. Kristen Naru, I, I can't help but mention it again because we've, we've taken quite an interest in the um, the way that Australians have um, moved their would-be migrants into Nauru. Some awful stories there. But we'll get back to the climate issues. Um, these, these small islands, I've got a list of them from the computer. They're scattered over a huge area, aren't they? How do they communicate yeah. with each other? Yeah, it's absolutely. It, and communication is a problem. Um, and one of the reasons that the United Nations focused on small island developing states in terms of sustainable development was the distance from markets the small islands have. So even if they're producing um, goods, it's very difficult for them to access markets. So they are widely spread and communication is a challenge. And sometimes we wouldn't be able to connect with certain countries because the internet wasn't 100% reliable. The, the, uh, was everything done in English? At the United Nations it was. Um, I worked solely in New York and didn't get very many opportunities to travel to the Pacific. How, how long they, were you? They speak a lot of languages in the Pacific. How, how long were you in New York, Teal? Four years. Oh, that's a long time. Yeah, it was, it was an amazing experience. It was difficult to come home. <laughs> <laughs> did you come home within that four years or was it non-stop? I did. I did have a couple of trips home to see my family. No, the, the main issue that you were concerned with is climate, of course, the, um, which is a deadly serious issue for small island states. Do they feel that they're getting a proper voice in the UN? Um, I think a proper voice, yes, but not proper action, to be honest. So certainly we would be listened to when the Pacific spoke or when the island spoke. There definitely other countries would listen, but then the action didn't, wasn't commensurate with the scale of the problem. Absolutely not. And one of the things I was most proud of was the work that the Pacific did in putting it on the Security Council's agenda. Because for the Pacific, climate change is a question of survival and the very existence of some of the countries. Tuvalu is a good example where by 2050, the predictions are it will be uninhabitable. And so that raises serious issues of sovereignty and voice at the United Nations. And so the Pacific did an extraordinary campaign to have the Security Council deal with that issue. In fact, some of the, the, the people involved are very much aware, aren't they? I think a woman from Kiribati gave quite a, quite a moving speech at some, some gathering. Yeah, absolutely. Kiribati has done a lot of um, advocacy internationally on climate change and they're yeah, really engaged on the issue. There have actually been one or two already people classified as climate refugees, haven't they, who have applied for that and been granted it? I'm not sure they've been granted it, but certainly um, people have been forced to displace from their homes because of climate change, which is a different category under international law to refugees. It's interesting because people forced um, to to move from their homes because of climate change. It's nothing that's happened, it's nothing that their own government has caused, which is normally refugees are fleeing persecution from their own country. In the case of climate change displaced people, the reason is that globally countries have caused the problem, requiring them to move. So it's nothing that they or their country has done. You just reminded me, I think we had a case in New Zealand 
of a Kiribati man who was being deported, and he tried to make the case that he was a refugee. And the, the government didn't want to accept climate refugees as a legitimate refugees, or else there would be so many more, which is <laughs> a horrible way to look at the situation, isn't it? That's exactly right. There is no international provision to protect people who are being displaced from their homes because of climate change. And in fact, when I was working there, that wasn't something we talked about because the Pacific people don't actually want to move from their homes. And why, why should they have to? Yes. When we already, we know how to reduce our emissions. Um, technology and is available to us. We're just choosing not to um, take the political will to do it, to change our systems, our transport systems. Um, we're just choosing not to do it. So I guess when we, there was a big reluctance among many countries, not all in the Pacific, to talk about being displaced because of climate change because in some sense that let developed countries off the hook. Yes, it does, doesn't it? It's sort of Although they, internally they're going to have climate refugees as well. That's absolutely right. And I personally think it's something we need to talk about because there is so much carbon already locked into the atmosphere that it's going to happen. And I'd rather talk about it now and try and make provision for a compassionate and just response rather than wait to the case where it's too late and people become victims of climate change and then their ability to negotiate an outcome that meets their needs is significantly reduced. It's a moral and ethical issue, isn't it, really, as well as a, it, a it, scientific issue? It absolutely is. What, how we respond to people displaced from climate change is a moral and ethical issue, and I think we need to start discussing it in New Zealand now. One more question about this trying to communicate with each other. Um, I think New Zealand belongs to something called Pacific Islands Forum. Yes. Is there any connection? To, were you able to, to speak to them as well? Yes, so the Pacific Islands Forum includes all the Pacific Islands that I was working at with, plus Australia and New Zealand. So on occasion, we would work with the Pacific Islands Forum, and it is an important international grouping. The challenge was that on climate change, which was the most important issue for the Pacific when I was working for them, New Zealand and Australia's policies are so vastly different. And that made it very, very difficult, because when there would be meetings... The concern was that Australia and New Zealand's policies would water down what the Pacific wanted to do. So it was it was very, very difficult. Yeah. The, um, what role do you see for New Zealand? What role should it be taking? In my view, New Zealand should be taking a leadership role, without a doubt, and it should be more generous and compassionate when it comes to the Pacific. It needs to talk to Pacific countries and ask them, what, what what they want and to support Pacific initiatives. I think New Zealand New Zealanders want us to be leading on this issue. But so far, I mean, it seems that the New Zealand doesn't have much of a climate policy. I mean, re emissions reductions or anything. If anything, they're increasing with time, aren't they, as time goes on? That's absolutely right. I mean, we're one of the laggards in the international climate change negotiations. When I was there... Um, Pacific was doing some amazing work, not only in advocacy, but also in looking at how they can reduce their own emissions. And New Zealand's interventions would say things like, we need to do our bit, but we don't want to be a leader because we don't want to be ahead of the pack. And the targets that they would announce would mean the demise of some of the countries I was working with. So I've never been more ashamed in my life to be a New Zealander than when I was attending the climate change negotiations. 
It's oh, really, embar- really embarrassing for you, isn't it? That, that Actually, we, we were talking about climate issues recently with Jeff Key of Forest and Bird, and he made the point that no country wants to be a leader in doing something about climate, but if nobody leads, we're all going to be losers. <laughs> that was exactly very well right. put. I mean, New, exactly Ze- right. New Zealand has led before on, on important issues, even though we are a small country. I mean, the nuclear thing stands to mind, the anti-apartheid stands to mind, so why not? That's exactly right, particularly when it's our Pacific neighbours who are some of the most vulnerable. I think New Zealanders have been extraordinarily generous when um, cyclones and hurricanes have hit Pacific countries because they are our neighbours. Here's an opportunity to think in advance to try and prevent disaster. And why would we not want to do that? Why would we not want to be part of the solution? It's, um, I wonder if the problem is partly the sort of use of language. Like we've just had the news, you know, again, a year, the warmest ever, and you say it goes up a fraction of a degree. And I think for members of the public who haven't looked into the science, it doesn't sound bad, a tiny fraction of a degree. Uh, it might be better to talk about the number of t- storms have, that have gone up you know, the, or the intensity of storms or the n- more people who have been killed or displaced because of climate. I wonder if, the, if that's sort of the approach that we need to get to the, through to the public. I think that's a really important point, Lois. I agree with you that some of the way it's communicated in the media, the scientific language isn't helpful. And talking about, yeah, the number of storms is helpful because we can relate to that here in New Zealand because we experience an increase in storm and increase in severity of storms as well as drought. I also think we need to be talking about the solutions. We need to be talking about um, what climate solutions look like so that people can imagine, imagine that world. And, you know, the, the easiest example is improving our transport system so that we have public transport, which makes our cities more livable. Why would we not want to be doing that? And yet we're even behind European countries with issues about transport, but also to do with our kind of agriculture, isn't it? Yeah, agriculture is a challenge, so we need to look at that and invest in ways to make um, continue agriculture without emit, emit huge emissions. But until we name the problem and accept that we're going to look at it and research it, then we can never find the solution. And of course, agriculture has the um, additional problem of polluting our waterways. So how we can live in this country and think it's acceptable that you can't swim in 60% of rivers where we're monitoring is just beyond belief. You're listening to Earthwise, broadcasting in Christchurch on Plains FM 96.9, in Hamilton on Free FM, and in Waikanae on Coast Access FM. Today's guest is environment lawyer Theo Crossan. Well, you mentioned his language. I've always thought global warming wasn't a good choice of phrase. It, it sounds rather nice. Cozy, even. It, um, I know Vandana Shiva, the Indian scientist, has always said climate chaos. And recently I've heard people use the phrase climate catastrophe. So do you think partly the language is the problem? Yeah, definitely um, language is a problem. And I think global warming partly was... That, that word was used, it doesn't sound so bad. Um, I tend to use climate crisis, so I'm with you on this, Lois. I noticed that you said climate chaos, and I tend to use climate crisis. All right, yeah, that's um, good. Although I'm not sure that works either because it, it's too much for people. I think we do need to focus on climate solutions and make it something that we're working towards to achieve. That, that's a good point. We need to feel that there's a point to it. You have to always at the same time, warn of the danger and provide some hope. So you can't just wallow in despair and do nothing. 
That's exactly right. I think people aren't quite sure what they can do to, to respond to the climate crisis. Um, and my view is that what you can do is you can get politically active because we do need collective action. Individual choices are really important, but it's actually collective action that will solve the problem. We need collectively as communities to invest in infrastructure that is climate friendly, so that means public transport. And that requires, you know, government, local government and central government action. So there is lots we can do. No, I'm glad you mentioned that you've got to have individual and collective. It's not either or, you've got to have both. And um, we also need to think about the sort of long-term consequences of sort of capitalism, the way the economy is run as, as internal growth. We, we must be questioning these these ideas very rapidly. That's exactly, exactly right. And the solutions are there, but the solutions will require a change to our economic system and will require hard work. But my view is, is that New Zealanders have never shied away from hard work. I think if they face the reality and the challenge... They would accept it, particularly if maybe we need to focus more of what is actually happening to our, our neighbours. And we are a Pacific country. Did you have a chance, I think I might have already asked you, to visit any of the island countries yourself? Um, I travelled a lot when I was working in New York to the negotiations, but I didn't get to travel to many of the Pacific. I did go to Vanuatu for a meeting on, meeting on sustainable development. And to Fiji also for a meeting on sustainable development, which we, for us, quite sustainable development was always about climate change. But mostly I was um, attending climate change negotiations and, and the General Assembly. I think you mentioned in your article that we read about the, the Paris Agreement, but it said what they're calling for doesn't take place until 2020. Yeah, and that was a huge, huge problem for the Pacific when that was being negotiated. It is That, that deal allowed some of the developing countries more time. The challenge was is that developed countries haven't actually taken the lead. The original Climate Change Convention forged a deal between developed countries whose wealth was because of the burning of fossil fuels and developing countries who hadn't had that opportunity. The deal was that developed countries would take the lead. They would start to reduce their emissions and then share the technology to enable developing countries to do that. And that never really happened. And to provide more time before developing countries are to reduce their emissions, it was put off until 2020 for the New Deal. But that's too late in order to actually reduce emissions in a necessary time frame. The problem being is that you lock in infrastructure. If, you, if you're building a coal-fired power station, you're not going to demolish it. We need to stop locking in infrastructure that is carbon intensive and start bringing in infrastructure that is not. So that was... Um, a huge problem with the Paris Agreement. But having said that, I still think it was an amazing feat of diplomacy. Having been involved intimately in the negotiations and seen the challenges, to get developing countries and developing developed countries to agree to everyone to take action on a time scale was phenomenal. Now we need to, to work out how we're going to do that because New Zealand's commitments aren't... In, aren't in line with what we've agreed. We, our emissions are rising. So the fact that we have an agreement is wonderful and every country now needs to work out how we're going to reduce our emissions. And what we agreed, the commitments we agreed to, that we should go further than that if we're actually going to achieve climate stability. So 
We not only say New Zealand should be a leader, it's not even being a follower, it's not even following... Um, <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. Until I knew you years ago when you were with Forrest and Bird. Didn't Were you with Forrest and Bird Environmental Lawyer yes. for them? Yes, yes, I was. Yes, I remember that. And now you're back in New Zealand. What What is the situation with the environment in New Zealand? I've heard something about the Resource Management Act um, threats, threats to change it. Yeah, my the environment in New Zealand continues to degrade because our law is ineffective to protect it. That's my view. And continued changes to the Act further um, reduce the protection. But in my view, we need to think anew about what type of law to protect our waterways, our cities, our threatened species, because mm. it, it hasn't produced the outcomes that had been hoped for when it was originally enacted back in 1991. And it's very urgent, isn't it? People must realise the urgency of all this. Yeah, it absolutely is urgent. It's e repairing environmental damage is you know, more costly than not making it in the first place. Yes, well, there's certainly a lot more, <laughs> a lot of work ahead of us. And we really need to um, introduce a feeling that we're part of nature. We're not something that to exist separate from nature, and it doesn't matter what we do to nature. But also we're part of the Pacific, and we're part of the worldwide humanity. We should be yeah, uh, a different way of looking at life, I think. I'm afraid our time is about up to you, and we'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. This um, has been fascinating talking to you, and welcome back to New Zealand. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Martin, it was great talking to Teal, wasn't it? Yeah. Good on Teal Crossan that, that she's back helping us in New Zealand. Uh, from us at Earthwise. Goodbye. Goodbye.